Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Well, guys, uh, one of the most prominent themes throughout the entirety of Scripture, um, especially uh, kind of Jesus' main talking points in the gospel, revolve around the theme of the kingdom of God uh, or the kingdom of heaven. These, these terms are synonymous for one another. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we actually uh, began to dive into this when we were studying John the Baptist. And uh, John the Baptist's primary message that we found in Matthew chapter 3 in verses 1 and 2 was this idea of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that same message, it's that same message that Jesus actually began to preach when he began his ministry. When he began to go uh, to Galilee and he began to uh, call disciples to follow him, his primary message and the continuation of his message from there throughout the rest of the Gospels is this message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you read Matthew 4.17, it says that it says that from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repeat for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This pronouncement from Jesus was an announcement of God's Savior and his messianic kingdom. It was Jesus saying that the kingdom of God was within reach because the king himself was here. I think that's profound. I think that's important to understand because a lot of the times we, we read this passage, we think, about, uh, we think about Jesus saying the kingdom of he heaven, uh, the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, these things to me all kind of come together to mean that it's accessible. It's within reach because Jesus is here. And it's this picture that we're not going to quite get into this morning of a kingdom that is already but not yet. It's the fact that because Jesus is here, his kingdom is here. But it's going to come in even a greater measure when he comes again. And that's really awesome. And that's why we cry, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. That's why, we, that's why we want him to come back because we understand that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven as we have professed faith in Jesus Christ, but we do know that there is a promise of a better kingdom yet to come. Does that make sense? Probably not. It's a little, uh, it's a little intense, but that's a different sermon that I've already written that I'm going to try not to preach this morning, but some of it will come out as we talk today. And so I, I think in terms of kingdom. And as we talk about the kingdom of God, we're entering into a sermon series, um, and I don't know how long it'll be. I wrote like three messages this morning uh, in uh, just kind of as I was going over my message for this morning. I just uh, felt like the Lord kind of give me some things to keep rolling with and keep going with in terms of the kingdom of God. And so I've been really excited and have to make sure that I'm reining myself in to just say what he wants me to say today. Um, but we're going to jump into a series of teaching on the kingdom of God taken from the parables of Jesus. Because it was a primary message, if it was the primary message in Jesus' day, it's still relevant to us today. Does that make sense? And so, but in terms of context, I want, to, I want you to think like a first century Jew. 
that is living under Roman rule and occupation. You really are, are, are subordinate to another governing entity. And there's this promise of a Messiah that was going to come. And, and the, the, the way that the Jews of the day really began to think about it and what they thought of was that they were promised a political ruler or a leader that was going to come and overthrow Roman rule and occupation and restore the glory to Israel and restore the Davidic kingdom in a, in a governmental sense. And that was what the Jews of the day and even some of his followers were expecting. In fact, after the end of the Gospels, after Jesus has died and risen again, even in the book of Acts, they're asking Jesus right before he uh, gets taken up into heaven for the second time. They say, well, God, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And, and I, I think of Jesus like, if I was Jesus, I'd be like, guys, come on, you still don't get it? Like, how long do I have to put up with you, you stupid generation? Uh, that, that, that's how I would be. Thank God I'm not Jesus, right? <laughs> Instead, he responds, it's not yet. It, it, it's not for you to know the times and the dates and the hours and these things. But he promises to give the Holy Spirit. And so as I'm thinking about all that, uh, I, I just want you to know that as we think about kingdom, as we think about the kingdom of God, we're talking about a different kind of kingdom. We're talking about a different system. We're talking about something that is entirely different than the kingdom, the kingdoms that we're familiar with in this world. It's completely revolutionary and countercultural. But in Jesus's day, they were expecting a king to come and overthrow the rule of the oppressive Roman Empire. Their expectation of the Messiah was that they would save them from Rome, not from their sins. And it's what a lot of people today, I believe, are still looking for in Jesus, looking for in a savior. They're looking for someone to free them from their suffering, to free them from their poor decisions, from their hardships, from the cruelty of this world. And I'm not saying that he doesn't do that, but Jesus' primary reason for saving us is to save us from our sin, not from the culture, not from the government, not from hardship. He didn't die on a cross. He didn't suffer on Calvary because he was concerned primarily about your comfort. I believe he was more preoccupied with the offense of our sin and the death penalty that would await us if we continued in it. Now, that's not to say, I want you to hear me, that's not to say that Jesus is, is not concerned with your comfort or with your hardships or the trouble that you're facing. I 100% believe Jesus is invested and concerned about every aspect of your life. But Jesus did not go to the cross. Jesus did not die a horrific death at the hands of sinful men for your comfort, for your pleasure, for you to get it easy in this life. In fact, I think we miss it, we miss it so much because we treat Jesus as kind of like this, this fix-all where, man, things are going really rough, and we kind of pitch Jesus in this way that, man, if you just try Jesus, everything's going to be easy. Everything's going to be be, be okay. And the reality of it is, 
Jesus never promised that it would be an easy thing to follow him. He says things like, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. We're invited to partake in his suffering and his death. We're invited into hardship if we choose to follow Jesus. But I say that because I still believe that he does make everything better. It is always 100%. If there's any way to kind of frame this, there, there isn't a comparison to life without Jesus and life with Jesus. But I don't want to spin this narrative that somehow it's just easy. You guys remember the Staples commercial that was like the easy button? And it was just like, you can press the easy button and things just go smooth. I mean, we understand that life doesn't have one of those. Um, (laughs) And neither does it come with following Jesus. But I can guarantee you, it might not be easier, but it will definitely be better. Does that make sense? Well, cool. I'm glad you guys are tracking with me. But in Jesus' day, when he was speaking of the kingdom, the, the people of that day were still expecting an earthly ruler that was going to come and reestablish the Davidic kingdom. And we understand, uh, if you kind of look back at history, that isn't what happened, right? Uh, that isn't exactly how things went. And there was a lot of confusion and pain and suffering, even in the followers of Jesus when he died, because they didn't understand that he was going to die. Because that didn't line up with what they envisioned a Messiah to be. And it's this line of thinking that brings us to this encounter in John 18, where Jesus counteracts these thoughts when he's standing before Pontius Pilate, awaiting his crucifixion. So in John 18, it says this, Pilate entered the praetorium again, called to Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate said to them, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And we see this uh, prominent message ring out that the kingdom of Jesus is a kingdom not of this world. There's cool little stickers that they made when I was in youth group that was an N-O-T-W and it stood for not of this world. And it was like this edgy Christian clothing line and I made really goofy t-shirts. Uh, I felt like I had arrived because I was designing t-shirts in high school and college and sending them to this company and they would print these t-shirts. And I remember someone, one of my friends took a picture one time and sent me uh, a picture of this t-shirt I had designed because it was for sale at this mall in Minneapolis. And I was like, Man, I'm freaking cool. I, I make t-shirts for this edgy Christian clothing company that says not of this world. They also sold like the cheesy knockoff t-shirts that were like uh, the, the John Deere. But instead of John Deere, it was like John 316. And <laughs> instead of like Mountain Dew, I think it was like Mountain Jew or something like that. Or King of the Jews. I don't remember. I, uh, I don't remember them. They were, they were pretty, pretty silly. Um, my shirts were really silly too. I don't know why anybody bought them, but uh, they did. Like 
three of them or four of them. Who knows? Guys, a kingdom is defined by the rule and reign of a king. And so I think the easiest way to define the kingdom of God would be to define it as the territory, or in this case, the people over which Jesus reigns, not just as Savior, but also as Lord. And we're going to make an important distinction about that here in just a moment. But there are many things about the kingdom of God that stand in stark contrast to our thoughts about what a kingdom is and isn't. As we begin this series on the kingdom of God, I thought it would be best to look at the Gospels and Jesus' parables because most of them start out in this sense of uh, the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a wedding feast. The kingdom of God is like ten virgins. We, we're going to look at a lot of these things that Jesus used, these stories, these examples that Jesus used to really explain what the kingdom of God actually looks like. And when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we're talking about you and I. I'm not, we're not talking about like a territorial, physical place. We're not talking about heaven that we'll go to when we die. When Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he's talking about people. He's talking about you and I, followers of Jesus, who are willingly subjecting themselves to a reign of a good king. And that's what we're going to dive into, and I'm really excited about that. And I need you to understand this because I, I use that language, willingly subjecting ourselves to a good king because Jesus' kingdom is not one that's built on, on asserting his power. It's not built on this idea of conquest. One day, it will be. One day, Jesus is going to establish himself in glory and in power, and we're going to see Philippians chapter 2 actually unfold, where at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and, and tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's going to happen someday. But in this age, today, Jesus doesn't force people to follow him. And I, I want you to think about this because every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. Those on the earth, those under the earth, those in heaven, they're going to confess Jesus as Savior. They're going to confess Jesus as the Lord. That's going to happen. But what matters is if we choose it on this side of eternity. What matters is if we willingly choose so out of love here and now. Because there's going to come a day where that's not an option. But here it is. I, I think about this. I don't want my kids to love me and, and obey me because I force them to. I want them genuinely to love me and listen to me because they love me. Does that make sense? That is the same way that God treats his creation. That is the same way he thinks and feels about each and every one of you. That's why he created mankind with the freedom to choose him or the freedom to rebel because he's not interested in mindless robots. 
He's not interested in you just ticking all the boxes and just doing all the right things because that's what he forced you to do. There's something about loving God that is manifested in our willing obedience and subjection to what he deems good. And that is awesome. I love it when my kids just do something because I've asked them to do it, and they do it because they know that I want that from them. <laughs> and I want that to be my relationship with the Lord, is that I'm willingly doing what he's asking of me. He's not forcing me to do it. Does that make sense? I think some of us pray these prayers like, God, I just wish you would force me to do the right thing because I just really suck at it. <laughs> And we understand that that really wouldn't be, like, super beneficial, right? If God was just pulling all the strings. Some people think that. Uh, anyway, we're not, this isn't, a, this isn't a, a message on Calvinism and sovereignty this morning. Uh, this is a message on invitation. And I believe, friends, that we have a glorious invitation to follow Jesus. I believe he gives an invitation to the entirety of the world to come and follow him. And not many people will accept it. Not many people will respond to it. But the reality of it is, Jesus does not advance his kingdom by forceful rule or reign. He advances his kingdom with open and willing arms with an invitation to come and follow me. When I was in ministry school, I funded my way uh, through my room and board and the costs of the school by doing graphic design on the side. Did a lot of graphic design, designed a lot of silly t-shirts and stuff for churches and youth groups and did uh, more sermon slides and like series graphics than I would ever care to do. That's probably why I don't design any sermon graphics for any of the messages I preach. And more often than that, it's probably because I don't have a title for any of the messages that I preach. And so... Uh, anyway, uh, just a little bit of background about me, but in that regard, I wound up designing a lot of wedding invitations <laughs> for people, for uh, young Christian couples that were going off to get married from Bible college or uh, Adam and Shelby. I had the privilege and honor of divi divining, uh, not divining, designing <laughs> their, their wedding invitations. Um, and I, I think they turned out pretty good except for they had the wrong uh, date on there for their wedding. <laughs> was, uh, that, was, uh, that was a pretty big uh, flub. It was the wrong year, right? Yeah, it wasn't like a big deal. Like People knew not to show up like a year that had already passed, right? So people figured it out. In my defense, they approved the proof uh, before we sent it to print, and they didn't catch it either. When did you guys figure out that it was the wrong, wrong year? Somebody brought it up. You guys wouldn't have even noticed unless somebody else ratted me out. Oh, man. I just got done uh, printing off the wedding invitations for my sister-in-law, and so I'm pretty excited about this. She lives in London, and my family and I are going to uh, the UK, and then we're actually going to be in Europe for the actual wedding. Um, here in just a couple weeks now. It's coming up pretty quick. Um, I'm making eye contact with my mother-in-law, and she's got this face like, it is not that far away. <laughs> and this look of terror came over her face. Um, but no, we're, we're really excited about it um, because uh, 
weddings are a big deal. And as I was thinking about this, she lives in London. I've never been to the UK. I've never been to London. Um, but they're pretty, like, big about weddings there, especially with, like, the royal family. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but I, I, I dove down this weird rabbit hole as I was preparing the sermon and uh, just was really kind of blown away with all of the stuff that goes into these royal weddings that take place between princesses and princesses and queens and kings. I don't really understand the whole, like, monarchy, hierarchy, whatever, of, uh, you know, the royal family in the UK. Um, because in my understanding, it's not really a monarchy anymore, right? Don't they have, like, a prime minister and, like, parliament and stuff? Somebody's going to correct me on all this later, and they're going to be like, well, you know nothing about how the UK actually works and functions. I, I admit, I don't. I don't know what's so special about the king and the queen. I know that she passed away, um, but I don't know, like, why that's important anymore if they've got other systems of government. Is it, like, just tradition? I don't know, but I do know people go crazy over like princesses and princesses, princesses and princesses, princes and princesses that are getting married and stuff. Um, so uh, Prince William and uh, Kate Middleton, they were married in 2011. It was a pretty big extravagant affair. Anybody remember that? Is anybody like a fan of that? I saw one person raise their hand. Um, according to the internet, which is always 100% true, uh, there were an estimated 2 billion people, 2 billion, I can't even fathom that number, that tuned in to watch coverage of the royal wedding. It has a Guinness World Record for the most streamed event in history, and this was all the way back in 2011, of people that tuned in to watch this extravagant affair of people that I don't even know who they are. Like, I had to, I had to Google this. And when I was Googling it and I was reading about it, I had no idea who Prince William and Kate Middleton are. Um, everybody else is, does everybody else know who these people are or is it just me? Okay, some people know who they are. They're like celebrities or something. Is this like the, the prince? Well, I get that he's a prince, but I don't know like how it affects me. I guess it's because I'm American. I'm just a stupid American, huh? I'm going to really have to keep my mouth shut when I travel Europe, aren't I? People are going to be like, wow, you're an uncultured swine. You don't know who the princess is. <laughs> um, but this is, this is really, this is the whole point of this. This is where I was getting. Um, out of those 2 billion people that tuned in, supposedly, we have one of them here in Pagosa. Did anybody watch this? Confess, please. Nobody watched this. Not, 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 not a single one of you. Wow, I think we're defying statistics here. I might, I'm going to have, I bet you this 2 billion number was probably made up by somebody in the UK that just wanted to pretend like they were better than America. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot of people, Guinness Book of World Records put something out there uh, that, that it was. Um, but of those 2 billion people that watched this wedding in 2011, uh, only 1,900 people were invited. That's still a lot. I think about our wedding, I think we had like 150 people invited to our wedding, which felt like way too many people, but um, that was probably because half of Pagosa showed up, and like we had people show up to our wedding that definitely weren't invited. And if you guys want, here, here's, a, here's just like a little practical <laughs> tidbit of advice. If you're going to show up to a wedding that you're not invited to, bring a good gift. <laughs> I had people that drove like eight hours 
that I didn't invite to my wedding and they didn't bring a gift. Like, that's the whole reason why we invite a bunch of people to weddings, right? I love you guys, but we could have eloped. We were after that money. At least I'm honest, right? I'm saying all kinds of incriminating things. If this is your first time here listening to me, I'd like to pretend like it's not always like this, but it kind of is. So 19 people were invited to this wedding. Out of those 1,900 people that were invited to this wedding, only 300 people were invited for the dinner. And I, I want to... I want to be very clear, like the only reason why we go to weddings is not to see you guys up there have your awkward moment. It's for the food and more importantly, the cake, which brings me to the second thing. If you guys are going to invite me to your wedding, please have a cake. I'm over the little dessert candy bar thing. Like that's weird. I want some cake. If I'm being honest. Hot takes with Pastor Nate. Sound bites that we should not put on the internet, Adam. I've been to people's weddings in this room that didn't have cake. And now they're going to be like, oh my gosh, Pastor Nate was really offended. I'm really not. I'm, I'm just being kind of silly. So, but, but why all of this talk about royal weddings? Why these talks about invitations? Well, it's because I titled my message today. And I feel like it's always a very special thing when I have a title for my sermon. Um, I have to make a big deal about announcing it because I seldom have a title, but I feel like I'm getting better about coming up with things from the Lord about titling my sermons. And so this one is like revolutionary. It's going to blow your mind, guys. You, re you ready for this? If you're taking notes, uh, part one of the kingdom is the wedding invitation. So good, right? going to write a book. You guys are going to buy it. I'll even sign it for you. Oh my gosh, what am I doing? Only if I serve cake at the signing, we'll do it. <laughs> guys, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. While you do that, I'm going to tie my shoe. You guys are sitting not in the front row. You would have noticed that my shoe came untied within like the first 30 seconds of me walking around up here. I noticed. Thank you, Braden. <laughs> Jesus, you're good. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables. A parable being a story that Jesus uses to explain a deeper truth. He says this, verse 2, The kingdom of heaven... Is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted calf are killed, and all the things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. And he said to the servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. 
So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they had found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus, thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that it is alive and it is active and it's readily speaking to us this morning. Lord, I'm asking that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that would be willing to receive what you're speaking and what you're doing, that you might receive the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a, this is a pretty intense story. And so we're, gonna, we're kind of going to break it down here a little bit. There's, there's the whole historical context uh, that the Jews would have inferred uh, by Jesus speaking this message and this parable to them where uh, the prophets were actually killed when they came to tell uh, the people of God about the coming Messiah. We understand that that happened. We, we look at John the Baptist. He was beheaded when he was preparing the way for the Lord and he was uh, taken into Herod's house. And uh, ultimately, we see Jesus himself being killed, um, obviously. There's this retaliation and we see, uh, we see almost this prophetic utterance come forth in this uh, parable where we see the destruction of Jerusalem eventually happen and take place. And we're not going to kind of delve really deep into those motifs or to, to those aspects of the story, but I want you to be aware of them. Those are really fascinating for further study. Um, but today I just want to highlight uh, three quick things um, that I believe are pivotal to understanding the story well, and they're impactful for us as we follow Jesus today. The first thing that I always like to mention when I uh, come to this passage of Scripture, and this is interesting, um, this is actually the first message I ever preached as pastor of this church. Not, not, I'm not preaching the same message, but same passage of Scripture. Um, I, have, uh, I revisit a lot of the same passages of Scripture, and so on my computer I pull up a file and I like to look at my old notes and just kind of compare things sometimes and uh, this is actually the very first message I preached as, pas- as pastor of this church eight years ago. Um, same same, uh, same uh, passage of scripture. Sorry, I just thought that was interesting. It was special for me. I had a moment with the Lord and was like crying and thanking the Lord for all that he's allowed me to be a part of here. So enjoy that. But Uh, My first point is this, is not that this was uh, the first message I preached, (laughs) but it's that we are invited to a wedding feast. And you're saying, well, duh, Nate. (laughs) We've figured that out. That's what the whole story is about. That's what you've talked about so far this morning. But I need you to understand this. As a follower of Jesus, the gospel message is an invitation to a wedding feast. But I think more often than not, people on the outside looking in would think it's a funeral that we're attending more often than a wedding feast. Anybody here just love going to funerals? Is that like a thing? No, right? Any of you guys really love going to weddings? Yes, because it's typically a party. Uh, I'm sure there's probably been some funerals that have had a party atmosphere, and that's a little weird. Um, 
but uh, the reality of it is, uh, what we're inviting to is a celebratory, wondrous occasion. Um, it's something that we should be excited and joyful about, but oftentimes I think people's perception of what it looks like to follow Jesus is one that is kind of just uh, drooling and grudging. And I'm not saying that it's easy. Obviously, I've already talked about that there is hardship when it comes to following Jesus, but there is a joy to be had in serving the Lord. There is a joy to be had in following the Lord that should be evident to everyone on the outside looking in. It's important to keep in mind what we've been invited to. Relationship with Jesus and life in the kingdom is a wondrous and magnificent thing. It's truly a thing to celebrate. And so eight years ago, as I had a similar point, I wrote this, that our invitation to the gospel has been so misconstrued and falsely motivated that rather than inviting this world to a wedding feast full of all the king's glory, We've painted a picture of a church that's more concerned with making sin illegal and concentrated on the do's and don'ts of religion rather than the king himself. And I think that that still rings true today, that more people know what the church is against rather than what the church stands for. And I want to be a people, I so desire for us as followers of Jesus to be made known for what we're about and what we're pro, which we're pro-Jesus, than a list of do's and don'ts and a long uh, kind of uh, religious system of, of weighty rules uh, that Jesus never actually expects of his people. Now, I say that because if you know me, <laughs> if you're familiar with me, I'm very much a pro-holiness guy. I'm very much a pro saying yes to the things of scripture and the things that he invites us to. But what the Lord had laid upon my heart this morning, and this is actually the main message that I was writing, and the Lord kind of shifted so many things uh, just in what I, the trajectory for the next couple weeks. Um, but Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says this, and I, I've mentioned it a few times this morning. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is what the invitation to follow Jesus looks like. It's a wonderful celebration. It's a restful experience, which happens to be difficult. <laughs> And I realize those are complex, almost paradoxical thoughts. But in the presence of Jesus, things change. And we live in an upside-down kingdom that is not subjected to the rules of this carnal reality. Second thing I really want to highlight here when we're talking about this invitation is that excuses lose all validity in light of the invitation. Without an appropriate revelation of who it is that is offering the invitation, that being Jesus himself, will continually reject the mysterious wonder of the gospel 
for an inferior certainty of what is common. I, I believe this is displayed where Jesus talks about a wedding feast in a different parable. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus uses a similar story, a similar parable to explain a similar port. But in his telling of that story, those who are invited to the wedding feast make excuses for why they cannot come. In Luke 14, beginning in verse 17, it says, When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and I must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. And another said, I just got married, so I cannot come. Guys, we will all justify our reasoning and not accepting his invitation until we enter into the appropriate revelation of who it is that is inviting us. I mean, you might just say it's just not the right time in life. These guys had fairly valid excuses here for why they weren't going to go to a, a wedding. The, the one guy had just bought some land. He, he was excited. He was going to go inspect it because he was probably going to go plant some crops on it. He had his mind on big things that needed his attention. This other guy had just bought uh, a bunch of oxen so he could go plow his land. He needed to try them. He needed to test them. It, it, was, a, it was a pivotal moment. And, and in reality, a lot of us could probably roll those off like, ah, oh, those aren't that big of a deal. Like, yeah, maybe you should have probably gone to this wedding. But then you got this other guy who just got married. He's saying, I can't come. But all of these things, all of these excuses don't hold up in light of the extravagance of what they were being invited to. But the reality of it is there's a lot of people in this day and age that will forego the invitation They'll, they'll set it in their kind of junk mailbox or throw it in the trash because it's just not the right timing. Jesus says today is the day of salvation. Scripture will tell us that today is the day of salvation. It is never <laughs> the only better time to say yes to following Jesus. The only better time, more opportune time was yesterday. The invitation is an urgent one. It's not one to put off. There is nothing more pressing in this world than saying yes to Jesus. But people all the time will say, you know what? I'm just too busy with work. I'm too busy with life. I'm too busy with family. That church really just isn't that big of a priority for me right now. But that just simply cannot be the case. The big thing that I wanted to hit on this morning, and the main point of this message, what I really want to kind of focus in on is that you cannot remain unchanged in the presence of the king. That is not an option that is permitted. That is not an option that is allowed. But there are far too many individuals. There's too many people who want to reap the benefits of being in the king's presence, attending his feast, eating his food, and drinking his wine without honoring him as Lord. Charles Spurgeon would say this regarding this man. Right, We, we have this individual here. It says, the, the king came out to see the guests. 
He was intentionally looking and observing and inspecting those who came into the wedding feast, those that had responded to the invitation. It was with a keen eye that he was inspecting them, that he was looking them over. And he took notice of a man who had come in that wasn't wearing any wedding clothes, wasn't wearing a wedding garment. It says here that the king approaches the man and he says, friend, how did you get in here without wearing the right clothes? without wearing the right wedding garment. The guy was speechless, right? He didn't have anything to say for himself. And the reason why he was speechless is because he knew that he should have been wearing something different. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, but he gets cast outside, removed from the celebration to the place where there was weeping and there was gnashing of teeth. And you might say, you know what, Pastor Nate, that seems like a pretty brutal thing. He could have just asked them to go, like, change real quick, right? Like, maybe he could have just left. Well, many commentators, and I told you I was going to tell you a quote from Charles Spurgeon, but I, I, I'll get back to it, maybe. So if you were, like, sitting there waiting for it, it's just not coming yet. <laughs> but there are many commentators that will refer to the practice of a king or someone in nobility when they were to throw an extravagant affair, most notably a wedding, that they would actually provide a garment for those that were attending to change into and wear. It was something that was customary. It was something that was expected. It's a picture of exchanging our righteousness for his. It's a picture of us actually going through the process of changing in order to be in his presence. And uh, this is what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, he came because he was invited, but he came only in appearance. The banquet was intended, intended to honor the king's son, but this man meant nothing of the kind. He was willing to eat the good things set before him, but in his heart there was no love either for the king or his well-beloved son. And so with this in mind, there was this idea, and uh, it was particularly a Greek idea, not necessarily a Jewish one, just for what it's worth in my study of this um, kind of uh, unfolding of events, but that there were garments provided for guests of the wedding. And here we have a man that was unyielding and refused to change, but still wanted to benefit from all of the king's hand. He was willing to accept the invitation, and he was willing to enter in, and he was willing to play the part, and he was willing to associate with everyone else that had accepted the invitation, and he was willing to eat the food and drink the wine and dance the dance and be a part of it all, but there was one thing that he was unwilling to do, and that was unwilling to change his clothes. Now, are you saying, Pastor Nate, is this a message about us like having to wear suits and ties to church? I'm wearing a hat right now. That's not what this message is about. <laughs> if, if that is what you're getting out of this, we're going to have to have a real serious conversation before we go into the rest of Jesus' parables because they're going to go way, way over your head. But Jesus is using this to explain a story. And I believe that this is uh, uh, just a, a very poignant uh, 
critique of many people that follow Jesus today, where we're willing to enter in, we're willing to, to, to sit at the table, and we're willing to participate in the feast, and we're willing to attend the wedding. And we're willing to say, yeah, you know what? I'm down with Jesus. He's my homeboy. He's my savior. I really like that part. But the part about him being Lord and him being king where he says, you've got to change and you need to conform to my expectations for you. We sit back and be like, no way, Jesus, you can't tell me what to do. God, no way, man. You can't, you can't ask me to change who I am. That's so not like 21st century. That's so not 2023. Our culture says, no, follow your heart. Definitely don't change who you are. But that's the entirety of the gospel. Because you, as you were, were sucky. You and all of your infinite wisdom screwed up and we're broken and in need of a savior. And that is offensive to the heart of man. That is offensive to me as an individual because I want to think that I'm better than I actually am. But if I'm willing, will, if I'm really willing to look at myself, and examine myself, not through the, the lens of my own ego and my pride. I can with confidence say, man, I'm pretty jacked up. And I am in need of a savior. I am in need of God's hand reaching in and changing things. And the great offense here was there was a man that thought he could reap the benefits and reap the blessings of a king's invitation without conforming to the king's expectation for him. And that's not how this Christianity thing works. That's not how this invitation to follow Jesus works. He has expectations. He has desires for your life. And it's not because he's some mean, like cruel-spirited father that just wants to see you play dress-up and put on a suit and tie and go through the motions because he's sick and he's twisted. No, the things that he asks for you and the things that he expects out of your life and the things that he wants you to change are for your benefit and for his glory. It's in the same way that I tell my kids that they can't go play out in the middle of 160, right? It's not because I don't want them to have fun. It's because me, as a father, I am concerned about them. And I want them to live the best life possible. And when Jesus asks us to do things, and when he asks us to change things, and when he says that you shouldn't lie anymore, and you shouldn't cheat anymore, and you shouldn't steal anymore, and that you should love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, it's not because he's just some kind of guy up there that doesn't want you to have any fun. He paid too high of a price for you to come close to him and not change. When we say, Jesus, I'm so thankful for what you did on the cross. 
I'm so thankful for your, your extravagant demonstration of love. Thank you for forgiving my sin. But we keep on sinning. Can you imagine how that breaks the heart of a father? This picture of changing clothes is this picture of exchanging our filthy righteousness for him. Prophet Isaiah would equate our righteousness to filthy rags. Garments stained with blood. He'd go on though in Isaiah chapter 61 to promise us that we could be joyful in God because he clothes us with the garments of salvation. It says that he has covered me with a robe of righteousness, being his righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. I believe the harsh response of the king here was because he had made every provision for this man to change and he was unwilling to do so. It wasn't that he was incapable. And this is something that you need to understand. I believe because of the Holy Spirit and the work of grace and what God has done and his willing and tenacious pursuit of mankind, he has made it with, every, with everything inside of himself, with all of his power, he has done everything to make it possible for you to change. But I don't believe that God is in the business of forcing people to change who don't want to. I believe he allows us to be directed by the desire of our hearts. And that's why he allows us and he promises to give us a new heart and change. This man was fine with accepting Jesus as Savior. But he was not willing to accept Jesus as Lord. We pray this prayer a lot. It's the Lord's Prayer when he's teaching his disciples how to pray. There's this part of the prayer where he says, Jesus. It says, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Something that we pray, it's something that we're familiar with. But if we think of this as the kingdom of God coming, the kingdom of God is where he rules and reigns, is it not? And so the kingdom of God is established where his will is being done. And so when we're asking for the kingdom of God to come and his will to be done, I believe that is best manifested in a practical light when we're walking out the will of the Father because there is where his kingdom is. And when that is happening we see things transform and we see things change. But what we see in this man that was removed from the invitation 
His invitation was revoked and he was cast out into outer darkness where there was weeping and there was gnashing of teeth. It was because he responded to the invitation initially, which was a good thing. He wanted, he was down with the Jesus message, if you will. He was okay with Jesus saving him from his sins, but he was not okay with making Jesus the Lord of his life because he was unwilling to abide by the king's will. Because it came down to either this guy's will and what he wanted to do and what he wanted to wear or what God of all the universe or what this king deemed appropriate. That's the, great, that's the great usurpation of the throne, is it not? Is when man thinks that he has a better idea than God. And he thinks and he says in his heart, my way is better than your way. And what I want to do is better than what you want for me to do. We develop this proud and this haughty attitude where we decide that we're going to run our lives and do things the way that we want and I just have to be honest with you, you can not do that and stay in fellowship with Jesus. It's not an option to attend the wedding and stand in the presence of the king and remain unchanged. The greatest detriment to the Christian message of the gospel going forth and actually changing people's lives? You want to take a guess at what it is? It's a bunch of professing Christians that will confess him with their mouth but deny them by the way that they live. Because we've got tons of people that will say, yeah, man, I'm down with Jesus. Jesus and me are homeboys. Jesus and me are good. I love Jesus. I once had a drug dealer where I was fixing his computer on Craigslist, sitting across from me trying to pay me with drugs instead of money after I'd fixed his computer. No joke. I can't even make this stuff up. I'm in Bible college at the time, and I'm thinking, how did I get myself into this situation? It was Craigslist. Stay off of Craigslist. It only leads to bad decisions. Sometimes humorous stories where the grace of God got me out of them. But still, this guy is trying to pay me with drugs. And I'm just thinking, I need to get out of here before I get shot. I didn't take drugs as a payment. I should, uh, Adam has uh, repeatedly told me, you need to make sure you clarify statements in your messages because people are thinking you dealt drugs and like ran over kindergartners with your car or something like that. Like those things did not happen. I did not accept drugs as a form of payment. Um, but this guy is sitting there. And I mean, he's literally just sold a bunch of chronic to this dude. And he's trying to pay it for me. And he's like, so what do you do? And I tell him, well, I'm actually in ministry school. I'm in Bible college. He's like, oh, man, Jesus is my homeboy. Man, I'm tight with Jesus. He's like, I love Jesus. And I'm like, something here doesn't equate, right? <laughs> A lot of the times, though, a lot of the times, I realize that's a drastic example and is maybe an easy one to see. 
But the biggest reason why I didn't come to Jesus at an earlier age was because I saw my parents live one way on a Sunday morning where they were raising their hands and singing and shouting hallelujah. hallelujah. They were intoxicated, so it was hallelujah. No, um, that part was actually true. But, uh, they, but we'd leave, and we'd go home, and I'd see my parents shoot up dope. My mom sleeping with another guy to catch her next fix. And, and I saw, I heard the things of God, but I did not see them actually manifested in their lives. And it, it created this picture to me where God must not be worth following or it's all a sham. And that is what a generation of people, that is what a world is looking at when they're looking at the church today. They're not seeing the invitation to a wedding feast where it's a joyous celebration, where it's actually about, uh, it's actually about the king, where it's actually about his son. They don't, see, uh, they don't see the evidence and the fruit of a changed life. They hear words spouted off where we say Jesus loves you and Jesus can change you. Jesus can change me, I just don't want him to do it yet. So we'll just kind of pass it, pass the buck. But the reality of it is, if we're ever going to make an impact, if things are ever going to change, we need to understand that there has to be life change when we come to Jesus. I hope that makes sense, friends. I hit a bunch of buttons on my computer and I don't know what I did or where my notes went. There are three different people, three different types of people that are highlighted throughout this parable. The first group of people are those that were just indifferent to the gospel, right? They made light of the invitation is how scripture would put it. They kind of blew it off. It's not a big deal. The, the, in, in the, they, they kind of just went about life as usual. Not a big deal. It's like they hear the gospel and they hear the invitation to come to Jesus and it's just, oh, man, I got life going on. I got family going on. I'm trying to raise kids. I'm trying to do work. I'm trying to make money. I've got other things that are more important than this whole religion thing. Then we have people that were antagonistic to the gospel, right? Antagonistic to the invitation where they actually took the servants, they tied them up and they killed them. And that's very real for a majority of the world where it is illegal to preach the gospel of Jesus. If you want, a, if you want a, a window or insight into that, I encourage you to talk to Adam. And he's got stories and he's got information that will just blow your mind. But it's a very real occurrence. It's a very real response to the gospel is this antagonistic one. But I believe the most dangerous response to this invitation, the most disturbing, the most heartbreaking one, is the one that remains unchanged by the invitation. Because they initially say yes. They say, sign me up for that. That's a good deal. But they refuse to allow God to change them. 
And the saddest thing about all three of those responses that we experience here is they all share the same fate. They all miss out on the feast. Regardless of if they were disinterested, if they were antagonistic, or even if they initially said yes, but they stood rebellious and hardened and unwilling to allow God to change them, they all miss out. good news is this. I love this. It's about this parable. It says that the invitation went out and the wedding hall was filled with guests, both good and bad. I love, I love that Jesus includes that in there. He says, both good and bad. He said, anyone and everyone, we're going to fill this place with guests. But can I tell you that there are plenty of good people that are going to wind up in hell. there's plenty of bad people that are going to be in heaven too. And I want you to think about this because I I had Pastor Dwight tell me one time, you're going to be shocked by who is in heaven and who isn't there. (laughs) I think that's true because the reality of it is it's not about what you've done or didn't do. It's all about what he did and the price he paid for the invitation. Everyone that was invited and ultimately everyone who came to the wedding feast were undeserving of an invitation, but they found themselves there because God was good. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's within reach. It's near because Jesus is near. This parable ends with this this idea that many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few will respond appropriately to that invitation. We cannot afford to make that mistake. We must embrace Jesus both as Savior and as Lord. And that means that he will want to change things in your life. If your life looks the same today as it did when you said yes to following Jesus, there is something wrong. And I'm not here to beat you over the head with, 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 a, with a Bible to tell you all the things that you need to get right. That is the Holy Spirit's job. And he's already laid it out in his word on what needs to change and on what needs to transform. But I believe there are those of us here today. I know that it was true of my heart even this morning as he began to expose things and work on things in my life that needed to change if I was going to stay in his presence. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not one of come as you are, stay as you are. It's one of come as you are and let the Holy Spirit do a work in your life and change the things that God hates. Which is so counter. Which is so not, hey, you do you, brother. It's not what our culture says is good. This idea that, well, somebody's going to tell me what to do and somebody knows better than me and somebody knows what's right and wrong better than I can define right and wrong, that, that, just, that kind of line of thinking just irks 
the majority of people. If we're being honest, it, 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 it really doesn't sit right with anyone. And it's a challenge. And it's a need for us to have an unoffended heart because God does know better. And it comes to a place of us subjecting ourselves to him and knowing that what he wants for us and trusting that he is actually good and that he does actually want to bring change. None of us deserve an invitation. But he's graciously given it to all. That's the beauty of the kingdom. I don't know what God's asking of each and every one of you to surrender, to have change in your heart and change in your lives. But I believe that he does want to see transformation take place. So please, don't treat Jesus. Don't treat this invitation to the wedding feast. Don't treat the gospel as some kind of means to just make your bad decisions feel better. Allow the Holy Spirit to actually bring change to those areas that need to be that need to be transformed because in doing so, it brings glory to the Father. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.